Hello and welcome to The Crux of the Matter, the podcast by pastors for pastors. My name is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And I'm Pastor Scott Stigmeyer. How are you doing today, Scott? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? I am I am just dandy. Had nice. a fantastic vacation last week. Got to see trees that were so ridiculously huge. You looked at them and thought, this could like be an end. <laughs> <laughs> what planet am I on? I mean, well, nice. it was crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we were at Sequoia National Forest for part of last week. Um, and uh, one of the trees that we saw was 95 feet in diameter. And that's that's significantly bigger around than your car. Yeah. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. So so we had a great time with that. Saw some friends friends and uh uh came back had a had a funeral on Sunday for a wonderful wonderful man. Uh so I'm doing I'm doing well too. Just kind of uh Clipping along here post Easter. Yeah, getting back into the swing of things post vacation too. Yep, yep, that's what happens. Um, and as is typical in springtime, one of the topics that uh, pastors often end up thinking about and talking about post Easter or around Easter is the topic of confirmation, and that is our uh, that's our topic of discussion for. For this week, and kind of what is it, and how do you how do you do it? What are, what's good, bad, and ugly about it? Uh, you just had confirmation last Sunday. Am I remembering that right, Scott? Yes, that's correct. We always, or my practice has been to do it the week following Easter. Is that to get people to come to church the well, week following it, Easter? That is actually not one of the reasons, but it is a it is a good reason. I'll take that. Um, <laughs> probably the week after Easter is the lowest attended day, yep. or one of the lowest ones. And this actually does boost that statistic. But you know, um, I, I don't right. remember if that was the reason, but that is uh, as good a time as any. I grew up when I grew up. Um, confirmation. It seemed like most people had on Palm Sunday. Is that yep. where what it was for you too? Yep, that's that's when I was confirmed, I'm pretty sure. And that just for me um in my ministry has not been a great time to do it. And when I got here 5 years ago, this congregation was doing it in the fall. Really? Yeah, well, that's interesting. All Saints Day. All Saints Day. So, I mean, it actually kind of makes some sense. I, I I don't I don't criticize my predecessor for doing that. It, but his thinking was to remove it to separate it in time from from graduation because, you know, we we see right. so often see confirmation as graduation. And um and so there's a good reason and he, you know, and he did it in the fall. I just that just wasn't that just was throwing off things for me so much because you know we're not teaching over the summer and you know I just liked having it in accordance with the school year so I changed it when I came five changed years it. ago. It messed with your mojo too much. It, it messed with my mojo too much and uh, no, it's actually actually I really got why he was doing it that way and it makes some sense. It was just so different than I like to keep things kind of organized around the school year. And um, it just seemed to make more sense for me to do it in the spring, and that's what we did. So we we've been doing it on the Sunday after Easter, sure. Instead that of the Sunday sense. the Sunday of Palm Sunday, which is already crammed, right, right. Well, and it ends up having. I mean, obviously, Confirmation Sunday is often going to be it's a little bit longer service. Obviously, yep. you may have an extra hymn. There's all kinds of other stuff that goes along with it. So yep. it's 
doing it on Palm Sunday has never made a lick of sense to me. Well, and we don't do Palm Sunday as much as we – I mean it is Palm Sunday, but it's Passion Sunday because you know, we're using the right. whole three-year thing. And right. it just – you know, th- there's so much extra going on in that Passion Sunday with the palm entrance and the reading of the – the long narrative reading of the of the Passion. And so it just seemed like inserting confirmation there was just like a tack on or that right. it would be distracting from the solemnity of Holy Week in some way. So right. so we thought, well, Pentecost would be good, but the choice was made to do it the Sunday after Easter. Sure. And that makes sense. I have tried I, – I have really tried to not have a set day for confirmation mm. um, quite intentionally. Um I don't know if that's been the smartest thing I've ever done, but um, but my my thought process behind that was I didn't want people to get kind of absolutely wed to, oh, this is always on X. Yeah, and there's always and 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 a part of it I think is that I am very I am very sensitive to the fact that uh, I don't want to start a tradition that whoever follows me is going to hate me for. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Well, and, um, and there are disadvantages to tying it to something like Palm Sunday or Easter like I do because sure. it that date changes every year. And that's right. And then I may one year I may have several weeks fewer in which to instruct my kids and another year have extra weeks. And so if you just say, well, it's the first of May or something like that. I mean, it sounds like you just do it in the spring. Right. You pick a yeah, date. More with- or less, it's in the spring. And so last year we did it on Palm Sunday, actually, because mm-hmm. that, because we had Easter was rather late last year, as I recall, like the 20th or 21st of April. Uh, this year Easter's relatively early. It was the 5th of April. Uh, and so Palm Sunday, even if I wanted to do it on that day, it was just impossible. There was no way we could get everything done in time. Right, so, right. Um, so oddly enough for this year for us, we're actually having confirmation on Mother's Day. Oh. Um, I don't know. You know, it's fine. Yeah, sure, uh, sure. Mother Church, maybe I can uh, work something like that in. But uh, uh, but that's that's when we're doing it now, and uh, and it'll be good. So, how many kids did you confirm this year? We had six. At six, I is that six a, kind of a typical size class mm, for you? Six in the year five years I've been here, it's been six to ten. Six to ten. Yeah, yeah. Last yeah, year was eight. Yeah. How yeah, about last you guys? Year, I think. I think last year we had eight or nine. Uh, this year we had three. So so that um, it varies. That kind of uh, changed things a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, and a part of the challenge for us has been, I have been morphing or trying to deal with this ongoing tension that I think that all of us face to some degree or another, and that is, do I do confirmation at eighth grade mm-hmm. or? seventh grade or sixth grade or do i do confirmation at a grade at all yeah um we've been sort of slowly moving it a little bit younger since i've been here i've been here not quite four years and uh so i think i have three sixth graders that are being confirmed this spring uh last year it was mostly seventh and eighth graders although not entirely um and that uh and and that's kind of adjusted adjusted the numbers. So last year we had a few more than would be normal. I would say half a dozen would be normal around here. Um this year we'll have a little bit uh this year we'll have a little bit less. Which well, is fine. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like it 
you're, what you're doing by, um, it sounds like there's good historical precedence for, for, for removing it from too much attachment to a grade or a specific year. Well, I don't think I, my impression, Scott, is that there, there isn't a sacred history here mm-hmm. about confirmation in the way that I have seen at churches with schools. My experience, it's churches that have had Lutheran elementary schools that, that have the most carefully articulated confirmation traditions mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it happened in eighth grade. This was, you know, this was when, when graduation from the, from the elementary school was in place. Um, I think that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of reasons why eighth grade is where it's settled here in America in the 19th century. Um, and while we could go into the history, I don't, I don't think we should probably do that because we'd be here for like 10 hours or something. Um, and that might be awkward, but, uh, but there's a lot of reasons why eighth grade has historically been the practice. Uh, I, for one, am really not in favor of eighth grade. Um, well, wouldn't you say that once you get past the 19th century or earlier than the 19th century, it typically was younger? I mean, that's kind of, we well, do it kind I, of at an older age than. Yes and no. Um, I, w- I think you have to get quite a bit earlier than even 19th century. Um, if you look at Luther's day and, and really the expert on this, we'll, we'll talk about him a little bit more or as close as we have as an expert in the Missouri Synod right now is, uh, Pastor Mark Serberg. We'll talk about him more a little later, but, um, but to kind of get the, get the quick history, uh, Luther would often talk about, all right, maybe often is overstating it. Luther definitely spoke about how seven years old seemed like a pretty common practice for communion mm-hmm. in Germany in the 16th century. Um, German law typically had uh, communion taking place somewhere between seven and 12 years old. Uh, and that's whether quite or not a bit that was, younger than eighth yeah, grade. Yeah, it's quite a bit younger. It didn't get older until you got to later in the 17th century um, with the rise of both pietism and rationalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the one end, with, with the rise of rationalism, uh, confirmation almost became a, uh, a literacy exam. And with pietism, it became, all right, this is now a time for this individual to articulate their faith in their own words and in order to be able to do that, they need to be able to uh, they need to be able to express it in a certain way, to use abstract concepts and and all sorts of other things. So that at least in my research on it, much more common would have been like fifteen or sixteen. Mm. Oh, for the during the Pietism era, during that Pietism rationalism mm-hmm, age, mm-hmm. it actually went down a little bit and sort of settled on eighth grade or you know fourteen, fifteen years old. Uh, in the Missouri Synod in the 19th century, and eh, probably starting in the in the 50s or early 60s, there's been a slow nudge toward making that younger. Yeah. Now, do you have a uh, do you have a first communion practice separate from confirmation at your place? Yeah, we do, and this is something that I inherited, but I was pl- pleased personally to to have. Um, so, but it's still at a set age. So we have. Our confirmation instruction is three years. Okay. Which, you know, it's not the two, it's, it's three, it's sixth, seventh, and eighth. 
And after the first year of instruction, the whole sixth grade year is about getting ready for First Communion. Okay. And then they have First Communion, and then we spend seventh and eighth grade going more in depth um, with Christian doctrine. You know, the first year is kind of a survey of Christian doctrine where, okay. we, where we use, we use a, a little book called Lutheranism 101 for Kids. Yep. Which is written. Gosh, who wrote that book? Scott? Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe that was written for fifth and sixth grade. Um, and so, yeah, we use that as our sixth grade instruction and it gives them a survey of Christian doctrine. I also have them do like a little bit of a survey of the Bible too. And we, sure. do, so they do a survey of the Bible and a survey of Christian doctrine in their sixth grade year. And then I speak to the kids and talk to them about, you know, make sure they, make sure I hammer in what, what, what communion is and how to prepare for communion and so on. And just going through basic communion, you know, Eucharistic piety. Gotcha. And, and, and I do a little bit more with them on that. And then they do. Do you um, teach the whole year or does somebody else teach some of that? Well, the way we've been doing it is that I have a full-time music director and she teaches the sixth graders. Okay. Uh, up until, up until that point where, you know, like a, a month before they receive first communion, which they do on Maundy Thursday. Incidentally, which is kind of a cool thing. Sure. That and makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to do it, that's a good time. And, um, so I teach like the last month and otherwise I'm doing the seventh and eighth grade, which is a separate. We, you know, we start out together. You probably do something similar. Yep. We, we start out together with a big devotion. We sing hymns. We do something at like, um, suffrages or something out of LSB. Right. And then we divide into two groups, two classes. The sixth graders go with uh, Miss Emily Wook, and then I go off with the seventh and eighth graders and, and teach them. That's where we do catechism in, in depth. Sure. Well, that's a good that's a good practice. Um, we have, as I said, I've I, I kind of blew up confirmation here in terms of the age a while back. So I've got a span of kids that are in first and second year confirmation that goes from fifth grade up to eighth grade. And, and in one respect, I like that because I really don't like the idea of, of sort of absolutely formalizing this at grade levels. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, children mature at different ages, um, their, their ability, the interest and or uh, involvement of their families changes dramatically mm-hmm. um so it may be that a child that could be quite a bit younger may be able to do more because their parents are more engaged mm-hmm. whereas uh, a child may have to wait because it's going to fall more on them because their parents are not engaged um but that has honestly been messy and and so i've got a first year group and then I've got a second year group that's going to be confirmed. And then we have a pre-confirmation class as well, which so I guess you could say that ours is three years. Mm-hmm. Um, that pre-confirmation class is more or less third and fourth graders. And and that class is taught by uh, one of my amazing teachers uh, that she's a she's a member. She's a teacher at our preschool, actually, but she's just a remarkable um, Bible story teacher. She does a fantastic job. And so she does that class. Um, and then my deaconess and I sort of tag team on the other classes. Sometimes we do them both together. Sometimes we'll, we'll split them out. It, it's, uh, as I said, it's a little bit more haphazard than I would like. Probably makes my deaconess crazy. Um, but you know, that's what I do best, yeah, I guess. Yeah, sure. No, that sounds like a good plan. Well, and it's a plan and it is, in my mind at least, it is definitely, a work in progress. 
I do not feel like it is settled or even close to settled, which is hard because while we're kind of trying to figure out what we want to do, um, I actually have children that are being confirmed and it is not really reasonable to experiment upon them catechetically. (laughs) But I mean, you know, you and I have been pastors for more than a few minutes and I find that I'm still figuring it out. You know, I mean, it it is a work in progress and I'm okay with that. I, 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 I suppose if I had a large, larger church with a great deal more children, then it would be more necessary to have a, a firmly fixed plan. Sure. But we we tweak it every year. Yeah. We tweak our plan every year. Yeah, and and we're continuing to do that. Uh so this year, for instance, um we actually had the first year confirmands and the pre confirmation classes stopped at the beginning of Lent. Hmm. Now uh I'm gonna restart that first year group uh next week, I think. Uh and our focus there is going to be preparing for First Communion. Mm-hmm. Some of the kids will be preparing for First Communion. Others will not. I've, I have really left that. And, and my parish does not have a history with First Communion, uh, although it is relatively common here on the West Coast. Um, but, but my uh, elders uh, passed a, a, I'll call it a pastoral practice um, document on First Communion and Confirmation a while back. I have been teaching on the Lord's Supper for six months in Bible class on Sunday morning. And so we're going to start First Communion probably uh, later in the summer. One thing's for sure is that pretty much everybody recognizes that Confirmation as we have it is kind of broken. Do you think that, do you think that's fair? Oh, I think I think that I think it definitely is changing, and I think that, okay, I, you know, I mean, broken. I don't know. I mean, I kind of like confirmation. Um, I like it more than I used to as a pastor. Um, what do you mean? I mean, why do you think it's broken? Well, I, I I don't think it's broken in the sense that children aren't believing and you know mm-hmm. they're going to hell or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at least in my in my experience, the the level of commitment involvement on the part of parents has changed. Children that are in eighth grade today, in my observation at least, are about as busy and full of activities as kids that were in high school 10 years ago. Yeah, I get you there. That's for sure. And so that, that level has, um, has increased. I, I can certainly see it in my own children, my own family. Uh, and then, and kind of at the same level, families are uh, almost seem more disengaged, and that puts more pressure on the congregation, on the part of the church, to really figure out what they're doing. So that I don't know. I think in a, I think in the minds of a lot of parents, uh, religious instruction, whatever you want to call it, that's the that's the church's job. Yeah, and so. You know, just like you pay someone to teach your kid how to play soccer, you pay the church maybe to uh, to teach your kid how to how to be a Christian. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. I I think that, and I you know that's something obviously a theme that I bring up every year and and try yep. to communicate to the parents that it is ultimately their responsibility as their as the parents of the children to raise them up in the fear and love of of God, and um, 
I'm happy to be involved. You know, I, I love, I, I, right. I, I see myself as a teacher and a catechist. And so I'm, I'm very delighted to be, be that for them. But, um, you know, they need to be having home devotions. They need to be teaching, bring the, their children to the divine service first, first and foremost. Um, right. And that's not a given. And, and it's not necessarily always the case. I, I think it varies from parish to parish, but, um, yeah, it definitely is needs work and, and parental involvement in the parental responsibility area. Now, I know that some, um, I know some pastors and some congregations have gone a road that, that is almost dramatically different. Um, where I, I'm thinking, for instance, of, uh, Pastor Ken Weeding up at, uh, I think he's at Luther Memorial Chapel in Milwaukee or Shorewood up, uh, up in Wisconsin. Uh, I believe that he has it where the parents go through the entire thing with their kids the whole time. I did, you know, my predecessor did that. Yeah. And when I, so when I, I inherited that when I came and, um, I get it. I totally get it. And maybe the way Ken Weeding does it, you know, it would depend on the actual execution of the thing. Sure, of course. Um, but I find that I have a much better rapport with the kids when they're not with their parents. And maybe that's, maybe that's not a good motivation. Uh, I mean, I know that when I was teaching with the kids and their parents, it was, 10 times harder to get the kids to answer questions or to, to respond or to even show interest. Um, it, it, but I didn't have discipline problems. That's for sure. Right. Um, and there's so, something to be said for that. There's absolutely something to be said for that. But after a couple of years of doing it that way, I, I changed it where now I only invite the parents. I mean, they're involved in other ways. Like, you know, it, like when we teach the sixth commandment, for instance, I usually, right. um, want the parents there and I kind of show a little video and we talk about, you know, various things that relate to that. Right. And, um, and I've known other churches to use different kinds of ma- uh, methods of keeping the parents involved. I just, uh, for me, I like the inner, I like the give and take and the back and forth that I, the rapport well, and, I establish with the kids. And, and the reality, if I were the Pope, yeah, um, what I would want is to have a time is first of all for catechesis, instruction in the Christian faith to be continuous. Yeah. Lifelong. Oh, yeah. You know, kindergartners all the way up, yeah. whether it's happening in parochial school or Sunday school or midweek school, confirmation, first community, whatever you want to call it, youth group, that, that this, the, the practice of saying, I am continually learning what it means to be a Christian. That is a lifelong thing. That doesn't, there is no start or finish to that. Mm-hmm. That's what I would like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can certainly imagine a scenario where if I could have the parents be very directly involved when the children are a little bit younger, second, third, fourth grade, uh, something like that, then the parents work with them for a little while, uh, just themselves. And then I or my deaconess and I would have time with them again in that seventh and eighth grade. Because obviously the questions, the type of interaction that you're going to have with a seventh and eighth grader is very different from a fourth grader. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that should be tied to you know, or not necessarily tied to when a child communes. But that interaction is going to be very different. And, and I know for myself that 
I treasure having the opportunity to build a pastoral relationship with those kids at that age so that, you know, when they're in high school, when they're in college, you know, wherever, that I now have a, that they know me. Mm-hmm. They don't know the pastor. They know me specifically mm-hmm. because I was their pastor when they were confirmed. And so we have, we can actually build on, build on that relationship. I don't want to give that up. Yeah. In general, in general, I have a much closer bond with the kids, um, that I've confirmed without mom and dad present than the couple of years where, where they were. Um, I I get that. And I, and I, in principle, like the idea of having kind of a family confirmation system, but I'm, you know, I don't know that at least simply just having the parents attend with the kids, there must be something else. There must be some other way. There's gotta be. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, you know, you think of it, you think of it, Scott, this is in many respects, one of the absolute bread and butter things that we as pastors do mm-hmm. is we teach the faith. We pass on the faith. We catechize, we preach, we teach, we administer the sacraments. We catechize the youth, whether that youth is in first grade or eighth grade or in high school or where, however you want to define that. Um, and yet at the same time, just like, and we've talked about this a little bit when it comes to preaching, just like with preaching, um, every pastor does this. Very few pastors, in my experience, actually work at it in the sense of practice the craft and and try to improve upon that. Um, and if that's true for preaching, that is 10 times more true when it comes to instructing and teaching. Uh, it's just, uh, I have, uh, and, I, and I have a, a, a good circuit, I, I've got a good group of guys that I really enjoy getting together and work with. I have uh, tried for four years to to get some interest in doing uh, in 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 us as pastors getting together and talking about this stuff, and there just isn't any interest. Or or, or doing something together, doing some confirmation type things together. Yeah, helping I, each I, other I think, out. Yeah, I think there's a little bit more interest in that. But if I can be uh, if I can be honest. I think that the motivation for that is largely, uh, if I can do this, then I have to do, then I have less to do myself. So that's great to do something together as long as somebody else is doing the work and I just show up, mm-hmm. which is interestingly enough, exactly what we struggle with with parents. <laughs> so <laughs> pastors aren't that different in the, in the first place. Sure. Um, I don't know. It is, uh, and, and it's hard because, uh, like you, I really enjoy that that age group. They're you know they're they're on, for the most part they're honest. They're they're asking great questions. They're willing to engage. They they don't have the uh, uh, they don't have the inhibitions that uh, that adults do about kind of delving into really tough theological questions. It is a fun age. Mm-hmm. And they're not yet, mostly they're not as moody as they get, you know, right. very right. shortly right. thereafter. Yeah, they're not at the point where you just want to, you know, lock them in a closet for four years. Mm-hmm. Not quite. Close, but mm-hmm. not quite. Right. Um, and so that's, uh, that is really, a, a, I have such a love-hate relationship with confirmation where sometimes I will I will leave a class and think, wow, that was great. We really had great discussion. And other times I think, 
why am I here? I'm just banging my head against the stone <laughs> yeah. wall. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just bananas. And, uh, I really think that as pastors, this is an area where both in terms of the content of what we're teaching and methodology of how we teach that, that we ought to be spending a lot more time in trying to figure out. I agree. So if you get on that. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be my next task after All I right. finish then, everything. Else. You fix confirmation uh-huh. and, and then come back to me and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you about that next week. Okay. <sighs> and uh, if anyone else has any solutions for how to fix confirmation or if you disagree and think confirmation is great and that, that we're, we're full of baloney here, uh, you can find us at thecruxofthematter.net. Um, you'll find a link there uh, for contact where you can uh, contact us. Our email is feedback at the crux of the matter dot net. Show notes for this episode may be found at the crux of the matter dot net slash podcast slash 14, just the number 14. And I, I hope you will uh, do that. And, and if you wouldn't mind giving us a quick uh, review in iTunes along the way, that would be uh, that would be very fun. Um. One uh, one last thing, or a couple last things, before we uh, get on to our uh, our next next subjects, uh, and that is, I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, a little article or kind of a study outline that I did five or six years ago on the history of confirmation in the Lutheran Church. Uh, it's a it is an interesting and somewhat uh, peculiar history, not only in Lutheranism but across the board. Uh, I've I've done a done a few things with that over the years, so I'll put a link to the show notes in the show notes about that. Um, and the other the other individual that has done a lot of uh, writing and thinking about this lately is our is our friend of the week for or friend of the show for this week. Um, we can be friends with him for more than a week, I guess. Um, can you uh, tell us about him? Who yeah, are we talking about? Oh, sure. Pastor Mark Serberg is a pastor in Marion, Illinois, and he has a blog called Serberg's Blog. Okay, so it's easy to remember. Pastor Serberg, Mark Serberg, Serberg's Blog. And he's done some really, I think, important and fascinating research on the history of confirmation and and its meaning and its the role it's played in the Lutheran Church. So you can kind of look through his. He's he writes other things on there too that are equally fascinating. But but that's for sure definitely worth your time if All you're right. curious about this. Yeah, I think he's done a three or four part series mm-hmm. on the uh, mm-hmm. uh, what does he call it? The wild and wacky or weird and wacky history of confirmation, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, so we'll get, we'll get links to that in the show notes and, uh, and, uh, I would encourage our listeners to, uh, check that out and see what they can come up with. And that's on our website. And that will be on our website. Thank right. you. Okay. So what's bringing you joy this week, Scott? Pray tell. Well, every week we try to come up with a thing that, um, is bringing each of us joy. And mostly, at least for me, it's been, I've referred books and, um, you know, we're both bookish guys and I have a book yet again today. And this is a, a book by Gilbert Mylander. Gilbert Mylander. He's, um, an ethicist, a philosopher, and he wrote a book a few years ago called Bioethics, colon, a primer. For Christians, I think it's what's called a primer for Christians. 
And it's just a really nice synopsis of the big issues, the major things that you need to know as a Christian, not just for pastors, and I, but I think every pastor who's listening to us needs to get this book and have that. Of course, bioethics is so, something I'm very interested in, but it's something we all need to have some level of competency with. And this is a great resource for doing that. If you don't want to read something that's 800 pages long, you want to get this book because it's good the- good theology. He, he's knowledgeable and conversant with the issues, and it's not that long of a book. Hmm. Great. Um, do you remember, perchance, who published that? Was that a CPH or someone no, else? No, it's, it's not CPH. I don't recall. I, I, okay. I, I, know, I know it's not a CPH book, though. All right. We'll find it and put it in the show notes then. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so for uh, something completely dif- different that is bringing me joy, uh, what's bringing me joy is not a uh, personal grooming device, <laughs> <clears throat> thank you very much, but is the Rockwood Forest River 2716G. Now, you may be asking yourself, Scott, what is a Rockwood Forest River 2716G? Something well, to do I, with golf? It is not. I am here to tell you. It is a camper. Ah. Ah, yeah. yes. So uh-huh. last week, uh, as I indicated in our last show, my family and I took a vacation to the Grand Canyon to Sequoia National Park. We visited some uh, uh, some friends. We had a blast. Uh, great time. Um, and a part of what made it such a fun trip was that we had just – purchased uh this uh this camper a uh, forest river 2716g um i'll put a link to it in the show notes um it's it, it's really a, a remarkable thing and and here's the here's the deal for me when it comes to vacation scott i am a very plugged in guy i I am a I am a nerd. I'm I am glued to my phone. I've I'm just kind of continually connected. And so over the years we have kind of figured out that the best way for me to truly have a vacation is we have to go someplace that's really away from civilization. And uh and so having a camper has allowed me to unplug, to be forced to be unplugged, um, in a way that, that nothing else could. So, you know, it costs, costs a few bucks, but this, uh, really forces me to have time with my, with my children, with my wife, um, and, and not allow the outside world to sort of take over so that I can really focus on them as much as possible. Doesn't always work perfectly, but, uh, but that is definitely what brought me joy last week. And there is nothing wrong with that. I, I, I have great memories growing up, uh, going camping in a pop-up camper. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's, uh, it, it, it's definitely work. It's not like you're mm-hmm. going to a resort. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it requires some work and, but it also requires teamwork, which is really fun. So all of our kids have different jobs that they're responsible for. And when we go, we, you know, we get it, get it set up and it doesn't really take that long to get set up or to take down because everybody, uh, everybody has their, their part or their place that they play. So it's Great. been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Great. Well, my friend, I think that we are at the end of this this episode. Uh, do you have any final words of wisdom to our dear listeners? Not really, just that we appreciate you, the comments that we've gotten and uh, like to get emails or comments. Yeah, that's good. And uh, and I am sure that we will talk again soon, my friend. Let's, and let's uh, until, until next time, we will talk to you all later. Bye.
Very good. 